This is good old boy Mike from Sips, Suds, and Smokes podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 139, Mad Max Fury Road Movie Review. I'm Chris McBrien, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. If you're on Twitter, you will find us at Amaron underscore DM for Derek and at C McBrien for me. And popgoesyourworld.com is our website with all of our contact information. Derek, what's going on in pop culture in your world, my friend? Hey, Chris. Uh, Hi. Surprisingly, not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, after weeks of having tons of classic movies from the 70s and 80s and 90s stored up on my PVR, I, I pretty much cleared it out and I don't have a lot of stuff to watch right now. But um, I, I wanted to have a quick discussion with you, pop culture related, based on something that just happened to me in the last day or two. Sure. Okay. So um, there is a movie that stars Tom Hanks that came out. I got to think about 10 years ago now. It was called Larry Crown. And have you ever seen it? You ever heard of this movie? No. No. <laughs> Never okay. even heard of it. <laughs> well, okay. And so this got me thinking. So okay. it's, the, the basic premise is, uh, and Tom Hanks uh, is the director of this movie. I think he might even have a writing credit on it. And he's a star. It's got actually a big cast. It's Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts and Brian Cranston and uh, Remy Malik and uh, a few other like people. When you see them, you're like, oh, my God, I, I totally know who that is. Um the basic premise is this guy who's like in his 50s, he's like a manager and assistant manager at like a Walmart type store, gets fired and has no idea what he's going to do with his life. So he goes back to school and it's sort of the idea of, well, this person who is very much in a later part of their life going back to school to try and learn something new so they can have a productive life for whatever years they got left. Um and it's like sort of that slice of life feel good. You know, the old guy changes the lives of the young students. The young students change the life of the old guy. You know, it's this sort of feel good. movie. And of course, the teachers and all the rest of that. Um, and I actually started watching it on an airplane years ago and I never caught the end of it. I had about 20 minutes to go. And I mean, it wasn't a fantastic movie, but it wasn't terrible. I mean, Tom Hanks is pretty good. Even when Tom Hanks is not great, he's still pretty good. So when I saw it in the lineup this week, I thought – I'll record it so that I can at least watch the end of this movie. And it got me thinking. The movie has a terrible title. The title is simply the name of a character. But this is a fictional character. It's not like you're saying this movie is called Malcolm X. Okay, well, I know who that was. I have a pretty good idea what this movie is going to be about. This is just this random dude's name, this fictional character with no other context. Like even I thought to other Tom Hanks movies, Captain Phillips. Okay, again, it's based on a real guy, but – it's his captain. So you're thinking it turns out in the movie he's captain of a ship. But is it like he's a military captain? Is he a captain of like an airplane or a sp- spaceship or a boat? You have context in the title. But this is this movie where it's just it's called Larry Crown. Who the hell is Larry Crown? Why do I give a crap? And it got me thinking, what, what do you what do you what is your feeling on a movie like this where the title really tells you nothing about the movie? It, it, I always find it bothersome that they're really banking on or they were banking on. The star power of Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts, they were the top two names above the title, and there would have been a poster, and I haven't looked at it, but I'll bet you if I look it up, it's nothing more than Tom Hanks' face. 
And that's what they were selling the movie. Here's a movie. This is what it's called. It's called this dude's name. And it stars Tom Hanks. Go. And like to me, that just seems lazy. Like there were, you could have given it 20 other better names that were more descriptive. Yeah, it still stars Tom Hanks and Julie Roberts. But come on, put some effort into it. So I just wanted to sort of vent that for a minute and ask you, like, what are your thoughts on this this sort of idea of a movie title that really doesn't tell you what the movie's about? I think it's an interesting point, but I don't think it's valid. And here's why I'm going to say that. Uh, because Meatballs. Okay, so Meatballs is one of my favorite movies of all time. As we know, I mention it every single week here, but there's no meatballs in the movie. They don't serve the kids meatballs at camp. They should have called it summer camp. It has nothing to do with the with the movie in any way. And so I don't really always have a problem with that. So and and so my case in point is meatballs. So I, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I don't know. It just it it bugged me when mm. the movie came out. I understand why because it's uh, because I just don't know it was top of mind the last day or two. It started thinking about it again, and I think I'm going to do a little homework and look for other movies that are simply named after the character. Like this, this reminded me of like television shows do this all the time. Like the show House. Now technically it's called House MD, so you're like, okay, he's a doctor. But when they advertise it, they're just like, coming up next, House, and you're like. What the hell? Like that provides no context is what this show is going to be about. So it, it, it bothers me. It, to me, it's just lazy. And uh, anyway, just had to vent that. No, that that's, that's it. Good. That's my pop culture two cents of venting. I'll, I'll let you tell me what's going on in the world of pop culture for you this week. Oh, well, not a whole lot for me. I'm, I keep pretty busy with other things. But I had a revelation this week. I want to share this with you. I just want to get philosophical, I guess, in some way for a second. A couple episodes ago, well, quite a few episodes ago now, we did Do the Right Thing. We went back and watched Do the Right Thing. And we did a, a whole episode reviewing that film. Yes. And it was funny because at the time, like, we talked about it. And, and like I said, well, like, you know, I thought we talked about the ending of the film when we got there. And I, I thought, well, the ending was maybe Mookie smashed the, the window to try and save Saul and his family and all this. And, and I realized, you know what, with all the things that have happened lately in the news, I thought, you know, we're a couple of, you know, older white guys trying to figure out what this movie is about. And I I, kind of came to the the feeling that I kind of missed the mark all these years on that movie. So here's the thing is that the end of the movie comes and Mookie goes and, and like I say, smashes the window and then there's a riot and they go in and loot this pizza place. Right. And a lot of people were very outraged about that. That was that caused a lot of controversy. A lot of white people were outraged? Yes, a lot of white people were outraged. About, they, they thought it was going to cause riots at the movie theaters and all this stuff. And really, if you think back to the film, you know, you watch this movie for an hour and a half or whatever, you're invested in the characters. And one of the main characters, Radio Rahim, was just killed by the police. Mm-hmm. But people's takeaway was that they were outraged that a, uh, a store got smashed and looted. Not that a dead man is laying on the street. And I think that's the point of the whole movie. The whole point of the movie is that a man just died and you're outraged that a that a business just got looted. Yeah, I, I, I can't argue with that. That yeah. makes perfect. That makes sense to me. It, it, it's sort of like. Why did I not see that before? Probably because I'm, I'm white you're privilege right. and I yeah. don't understand this. But just with everything that's gone on the news lately, it made me think about when we did that movie not that long ago. And it kind of put things in perspective for me. So I have a new appreciation for that film now as a result. Well, I remember when we did that review, uh, Mm. I I felt very uncomfortable being a white guy who grew up with a fair amount of privilege to 
really weigh in on any my thoughts are this and that because I, I, I didn't have a leg to stand on. I mean, I could from a film point of view talk about what I liked and didn't like. But yeah, it, it, of all the shows we've done, that one I, I felt the most uncomfortable sort of talking about because I didn't really feel that that my opinion, my thoughts really I don't want to say it didn't matter, but it, it uh, yeah, I felt very uncomfortable doing that one. But we do have a platform from which to speak, so it's for important sure, for to sure. give our opinions on that. And yeah. But just something that just kind of came to my mind. I just want to share that. Yeah. Another thing I want to share is that we have done a lot of episodes. This is episode 139, 139 of these things. And when you think about it, it's pretty amazing. We create something every week from nothing. It's so much fun that we that we do this. Um, so we got some great feedback on the show. You know, over the years. So we've been nominated for a podcast award numerous times, and we've got lots of good feedback. One of the, the key things of feedback that we've got from people is that they love the trivia that we do at the end of the show. It is a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Well, it's called Fun with Caveman, right? And and it before is. you came on, the show was Fun with Yancey, and we always had fun, and we did trivia, and it, it was a good time. So what we decided to do was, and this is actually your idea, Derek, uh, what about if we went back, based on this feedback... And we edited some of the shows and we started way back on episode one, you know, 138 episodes ago. And we started with those and we kind of put together sort of best of episodes that only had the trivia segments in them. And we could do like four at a time in an episode. So one episode, one best of episode will have like four trivia segments because people really like the trivia segments. And there's nothing like going back and, you know, listening. I mean, it's been, we've been doing this show. This is our fifth season, believe it or not. Um, but it's, you know, you, people can go back and listen to just the trivia part of it and just kind of enjoy that rather than listening to the whole. I, I hope they do go back and listen to the whole thing. That'd be great. But um, we thought that we'd give them a good opportunity to to relive some of the trivia that we've done. So, um like I say, that was your idea, Derek, and a very good idea. So we've started Thank to put together these, and we were thinking about uh, dropping a best of Pop Goes Your World with just the trivia segments, uh, one a month, probably starting next week. Sorry, Chris, whose idea was that? That was your <laughs> No, no I, I agree. Good and, on you. And again, it, it wasn't necessarily my idea by itself. It, it, it stemmed from feedback I received from people that I know that listen to the show, and it stemmed from... Um, my personal love of of pop culture trivia and barroom trivia, like you and it's I have so talked fun. about before. <laughs> I know. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that maybe um, don't want to give our show a full hour every week, but they download it and they just skip to the end to listen to the trivia. Or if it's a movie review of a movie they don't really know that well, they skip the, the first half hour and they jump right to the trivia. And I thought, well, there's an easy way to fix that problem. Uh, let's give them just the trivia, right? It's like, you don't want to eat the whole cake. You just want the icing. Fine. We'll give you just icing. We'll give you just crunch berries. And oh, yes. uh, so that's it. Yeah. Nice. So, uh, yeah, so let's, yeah. Let, we'll try to get these out once a month. Yep. Once It'll a show month. up in your feet, just like any other episode. It'll be clearly labeled as a best of. Yep. And it's just the fun with K-Man, fun with the Yancey parts. We decided to go all the way back to the first show. We're just going to put them out in the order they were originally po- uh, published. So, if you've been listening all along, you know, it's been almost five years. Um, there's a good chance you're not going to remember the questions or you're not going to remember the answers. Or maybe you do. Maybe you've learned something. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a good blast from the past. I'm looking forward to hearing them. Uh, Chris, I know you've been doing a lot of the behind-the-scenes works to edit those and get them out and uh, give them a little high-quality production value. And, hey, I love it, man. A lot of our trivia we do, like, 
uh, game shows. We do the twenty thousand dollar pyramid. Yeah, we, we do, do the hundred thousand dollar pyramid. Sometimes the winner circle. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's not even just straight up trivia. Sometimes. Yeah. And the sometimes. other thing you mentioned that I that I do the editing. Another thing that I noticed when I went back to edit some of the, the these episodes together, we use different sound effects for the correct answers, and boy, it just sounds so dated now. It's so funny. Wow. They're a lot of All fun. Right. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing them uh, when they're when they're when they come back because I mean I download the show every week and give it a listen uh, just to hear how we sound right. You can't you can't improve if you if you can't uh, uh, you know if you don't listen to your own show you can't improve because you can't hear where you've made mistakes or where you might want to make changes. So I'm really looking forward to hearing them in the podcast in the um, in my feed. So yeah, we'll we'll put those out once a month uh, moving forward. So in addition to your weekly pop go your, goes your world fix. Now you get a trivia episode once a month. Very nice. Now, one thing, of course, I am the embarrassing old dad with embarrassing old dad jokes. So here's your dad joke of the week. I figured since we were doing Mad Max this week and the movie takes place in Australia, that it would be appropriate, Derek, to tell you an Australian dad joke. So here it is. Hopefully this isn't too offensive. (laughs) Derek, why is Australia such such a dry country? I have no idea. It doesn't have a king or queen to reign on it. Oh my god. Oh jeez. Left, right, left. Black guys, help the white guys. <laughs> Hari Krishna, Hari Krishna, Krishna. Death before disco. Disco, yeah. <laughs> Should have called him the dork. I'm better than you. I can do whatever I want. It's like going into Wisconsin. You just broke my force field. Yeah, well, I got the shit kicked out of me in Wisconsin once. Forget it. Yeah, you win. Son of This week, it was over to you. Uh, you picked Mad Max Fury Road from 2015. Uh, I, I like how you mentioned last week, too. You said, I'm just, you're like, Chris, I'm sick of you hating my movie. So I'm just going to nominate movies that I like from now on and screw you, you know. Now, I read somewhere that this movie is a revisiting of the Mad Max series. Between reboots, remakes, reimagining and revisiting, I can't keep up with this millennial jargon. But basically, it, it, it all means kind of the same thing. Hollywood just has stopped being original. I don't know. But anyway, uh, so you wanted me to go back and watch this. I'd never, I'd never seen this movie. And full disclosure, this might be a surprise. I have not seen any of the Mad Max movies. So this one was my first foray into the Mad Max world. And, uh, and I think you might be surprised uh, at my take on it. But uh, before we get started on that, it was your movie. So do you want to take us away? Don't have to go too deep into it, but just tell us a little bit about maybe why you picked this movie, sure. why you wanted me to watch it. And we'll go from there. All right. Sounds good. So uh, I want to start by saying this is the fourth movie to be tagged with a Mad Max uh, uh, title. Um, but as you mentioned, it's not fair to think of this as a sequel to part three because it's not sort of. And it's not a reboot. Sort of. Um, the idea as I understand it, because I, I did a little bit of reading before it was released. I've done a little bit of reading since it came out. I've seen some behind the scenes footage. I've seen some interviews with the various people. The idea is that assume that the original Mad Max film happened and is canon. And the other the other two movies, maybe they happened, maybe they didn't. It, it really doesn't make a difference. All, all you really need to know coming into this uh, well, you don't really need to know anything coming into this because I think they do a pretty good job of setting it up very quickly. But for those maybe who haven't seen it or are unfamiliar with the franchise, it takes place in Australia. 
it's a post-apocalyptic, which I know is not Chris's favorite genre, but suck it up with me for a minute. Um, there's been a nuclear holocaust, and the story features the various survivors, and the series features this character, Max, who was a police officer. And in the first movie, you, you find out like he had a family, and the family is killed. And um, it's sort of a, the, the first one was a very low budget movie. It was like one of Mel Gibson's first roles, if not his very first role. And, and like the guy looks like he's 19 years old. He's, he looks like a little pup. And it, it is not nearly as post-apocalyptic as you would think by today's standards. Um, but it, it sort of sets a stage of this is what it used to be like. This is what it's going to be like now. There's been a disaster and we're telling a story in this in this broken world. Uh, so this movie, Mad Max Fury Road, uh, again, features the main character, Max, who uh, we, we see right from the beginning. Like the first shot of the movie is the iconic car. A big part of the Mad Max franchise is he has this like souped up car. The cars are a big deal here in this this franchise. You see the souped up car and you see him standing there looking looking across this desert wasteland and you see um, – it's like a little lizard with two heads to sort of prompt you to be like, well, that's not normal. And it's like, yeah, because there's been radiation and there are mutations and bad things have happened. And it's like, you know, it's a wild, wild west in Australia. Um, so Mad Max Fury Road was nominated for a Best Picture Oscar in the 2016 um, Academy Awards. Uh, of the eight films that were nominated that year um, – I, personally, I, I've seen five of them. There's three I have not seen. Uh, Mad Max did not win. The Oscar went to Spotlight. Um, but when I'm looking over the short list of – or the full list rather of, of who was nominated that year, um, Mad Max Fury Road and The Martian are the two movies that from that year that I, I probably watched the most. They they seem to be on cable the most. They tend to um, you know, uh, be the ones where it's like, oh, this is on? Yeah, I'm going to sit down and watch it. The other ones – Either I have not seen or they were like, meh, I watched them. That's fine. Move on. So I feel that Mad Max definitely in this field uh, had a lot of staying power. It's it's one of those movies that is going to continue to be shown on TV. It's going to be continue to be available through streaming services. It's it's a great action movie. The way I describe it to people who have never seen it is it's a two-hour car chase through the desert. But that's not entirely true. It's basically the first hour is a car chase through the desert and the second half is a race through the desert. And it's visually unlike anything you've ever seen before. So with that sort of little bit out there, um, Chris, I want to hear a little bit about your take on it. What'd you think? Like it, didn't like it. And then we can start to break down the movie a little bit. Absolutely. So maybe a little bit surprisingly, Derek, I actually thought it was pretty good. But I tell you a couple things where I differ from everyone else in regard to pop culture. Or at least I feel like I'm in the minority on this. When it comes to movies and TV series and sequels that people like nowadays, they like them. So they keep making different incarnations of them. But for me, the things I like, I like. It's good the way it is. You don't repaint the Mona Lisa. So you just leave it alone and you enjoy it. But anyway, regardless, Mad Max Fury Road, uh, it had a budget of over $150 million. And it made $375 million, nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best uh, Director and Best Picture, like you mentioned. 
And it won six Oscars. Six. In yeah. costume, editing, and sound. So, you know, who might argue? It was a success by all accounts. Didn't, didn't win Best Picture, didn't win Best Director. Mm-hmm. But it was the only Best Picture nom- nominee that year that did not also have at least one actor nominated, male or female, in any of the acting categories. Right. I'm which is very that. rare. Yeah, Usually the Best Picture has at least one person right. from the movie nominated. So, again, I did I, a lot I of I can see why there wasn't. Yeah anyone yeah I, I the get it were good i mean charlie's theron was great. like it's all good in anything you know yeah she's the a movie's called actress. mad max but in all fairness the movie is about charlie's theron's character it is mad it's max really- isn't even in it very much yeah I, interesting note here uh, and again this is this is indicative of this franchise is Ma- the character of max only had 52 lines of dialogue in a two-hour movie and some of those dialogue some of the dialogue was was no more than one word or a grunting noise mm-hmm. So it's very much the movie. This movie is very much a visual movie. It's all about what you're seeing on the screen, the 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 perception of speed, the chase, the the where things are in relation to other things, and the the back and forth and the the explosions. And believe me, normally when I start talking about like explosions, I think, oh, uh, Michael Bay over the top explosions. This is nothing like a Michael Bay movie. This was choreographed to the nth degree to create something on screen, unlike anything you've ever seen before and it's deserve in my opinion it's deserving of all the accolades it received it's a masterpiece this is like this isn't necessarily my all-time favorite kind of movie but for what it was i've never seen it done better it was spectacular i would not go so far as to say it was a masterpiece uh, I, like i mentioned i thought it was pretty good but i think a lot of that ties into the fact that like you mentioned that it's very visual so here's my thoughts on this movie it really boils down to this it's a visually stunning movie and Hell, it would have taken a lot of work to make. That's why I think the Academy actually rewarded it the way that they did, because they they recognize hard work when they see it. So it's a visually stunning movie, but I think I think at the end of the day, it's it, it really is just a, a movie about a bunch of people driving trucks and fighting each other. Yep. So I, I, let's start with what I know about Mad Max. So first, I, I with like with every other movie that you nominate that you make me watch. I don't read up on the movie in any way. I try to come in with a fresh perspective and uh, an, o- an open mind as much as I can of that, you know, uh, with a movie that's made after 1989. So maybe not an open mind, but I- I'm a little stuck in my ways. What can I say? I pretty much hate everything, you know, that's new. But anyway, so I came in knowing nothing about this movie. But and I like I mentioned, I've never seen any of the Mad Max movies, but I know about them. You know what I mean? So, sure. so, so coming into this movie, I had a bit of knowledge about the Mad Max series. Here's what I knew coming in. Mad Max was a low-budget Australian film from 1979, uh, set in the future after a nuclear apocalypse. I think that's what it was anyway. Yep. And that's there's fair. all these like gangs riding motorcycles and driving in like chopped up cars and everyone wants gasoline. And I believe that in the original film, Mel Gibson had his wife and daughter killed by one of the gangs and yeah. so he decides he's going to enact revenge on them pretty and, much and the movie was a success it it unleashed mel gibson on the world so maybe it's legacy wasn't all good i don't know <laughs> but uh, man, then they he made this brave heart and passion of the christ man you can't overlook those pieces but despite still... his personal beliefs and all the rest of the problems yeah. he's had in his life like yeah. those two things are gonna are gonna be out there forever i you know yeah anyway yeah. continue yeah he's also the sugar guy so i mean there's there's that they made a sequel to this movie called The Road Warrior. 
It was pretty was successful too. It was really good. And again, I didn't see it. A couple of I remember there was the, these WWF wrestlers. They called themselves the Road Warriors after it came out, and they wore the leather getups with the studs and the spikes. And oh the, yeah, the yeah, yeah, masks and all yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they made a third movie with a Thunderdome, and I just think that when you make Tina Turner, who'd never acted before, and you put her in as the lead villain, I guess the the, the movie series is pretty much jumped the shark at this point. And then some 30 years later, they decide to make another movie. And I remember when the, I was watching the Oscars a few years back and this movie won a bunch of the technical awards. And I was like, wow, what is this movie? But like, like I say, I never saw it till now. So I went in with pretty high hopes. Um, I actually went in hoping I was going to love this movie. I didn't love it, but I, like I say, it wasn't, it wasn't awful either. I thought that was actually pretty good. It, It definitely wasn't hot tub time machine or anything like that. Well, a few movies are as good as Hot Tub Time Machine. So. Yeah, no kidding. So anyway, on to the movie uh, itself. So at the beginning, they mentioned things like oil wars and we're killing for gasoline. And it's obviously a post-nuclear apocalypse, which is actually kind of suiting if you think about it, because we did war games last week. Mm-hmm. So. But it starts with these gang of pirates, I guess they are. And, and they capture this guy who you only assume is Max as the lead character. Now he was played by Tom Hardy and I don't know who he is as an actor. So I just assumed it was Max from the get go. And they put these tattoos on him and they go to brand him, And then he escapes and he sees the image of a young girl, this ghost. So again, based on what I mentioned about what I already knew about Mad Max, I just assumed he was having visions about his dead daughter. Was I right? I'm By the way, I'm going to have a lot of questions about this movie as I usually do. Um, Tons of questions on this movie, but that's my first question. Is that what that was supposed to be? Is I, I believe so. Again, I think I, I'm not overly familiar with the original. I've seen the War- Road Warrior a bunch of times. I've seen Thunderdome a bunch of times. I only saw the original one once, and it was like many, many years ago. But yeah, that that was my take on this was he's clearly um, – I mean, it's called Mad Max. He's mad for a reason. It's he's starting to lose his marbles. He's, you know, it's it's. Uh, so I I always assumed that this visions of this this young girl are visions of his daughter. Uh, they don't explicitly say that, but I think I think that's pretty heavily implied. That's what I kind of figured. And then he captures a lizard, and he eats it. And the thing was, you could totally tell. I could anyway that the lizard was CGI. Yeah, for sure. And so that's something I want to talk about because they use CGI for the lizard, but then they use these elaborate sets with vehicles and these rigged up trucks and all the machinery and the gears in the city. And it, to me, it just drives home how much better traditional special effects are over CGI. And, yeah, and, they, yeah. And, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say they one of the things. So I watched some of the behind the scenes features on the Blu-ray this week. And that was one of the things that the director constantly spoke of was they originally tried to use computer uh, computer generation to to do some of the special effects. And it didn't look real enough. Like you said, if you're a keen observer and you've watched movies for many years, you can get a pretty good sense of when something is a computer generated versus when it's real, especially when it comes to special effects. And he didn't feel that the special effects were believable enough in the way that he wanted them to be. So they, they did a phenomenal amount of this stuff as practical effects with very, very little CGI. He said like the, the scenes of like the sandstorm, like when there's weather effects, they obviously use CGI and the scenes at night were all shot during the day. And then they use the computer to, to do like a blue filter to make it look dark. 
but he said very very few shots in the movie relied on that cgi but the the lizard at the front uh, at the beginning of the movie uh, obviously was one of those and it's unfortunate that that's one of the very first things you see because if it, it may predispose you to be like oh is this mm-hmm. just gonna be like a special effects shoot him up and it's like it is but not the kind of effects you might think from seeing that little lizard well and i get it i mean there's just some things you you just can't do with traditional special effects right like for example bringing dinosaurs to life in jurassic park um but when you've got someone like George Lucas using CGI for everything from massive sets to newborn babies. It's just stupid. Uh, yeah. So my point, my point is when you see these rigs, the trucks and the choppers and all the mashup cars, they look so much better because they look more real. Yeah. They know? were real. I know. That's I just, yeah. I, that's what I liked about it. So, uh, so the leader of the gang, he's like the scarred up guy and he needs these bellows to breathe. And he, and he turns on the water for, for them like his people are obviously starving and then he turns the water off as if to show his power that he has over them and how much they they need him to survive so then there's that little person that's sitting in the chair with all the buttons on it and when that guy showed up my wife was like okay this movie's too weird for me i'm out um (laughs) (laughs) it was funny um and then they go into there's like these goth skinhead bikers i guess they are and they, they got these people hanging upside down in a cave i don't i don't know what the hell was going on there um i think they said something like they were going to use their blood to power the vehicles they strap max to the front of a car for some reason so again why is that lots of questions so they they describe through the course of the movie that the uh the the war boys that are like the pale skin the reason they're like that is because they're sick they all have radiation poisoning they all have they all have health problems and like the one guy has like the lumps on his neck he's even like giving them names and they talk about how these uh these these youngsters are all born with these defects and they don't live very long like they keep talking about you're at the end of your half-life and like they're clearly children like they're like in their late teens or early 20s and most of them fully expect that they'll be dead soon because they're clearly sick and when they find someone who's healthy they use their blood to like he says oh the war boy needs a top up like meaning he needs a blood transfusion because he's sick he needs an infusion of healthy blood so when you see the max character at the beginning when they capture him they're tattooing on his back he has this blood type he is the universal donor and they they like that if you pause that scene or you know if you're really quick depending on how fast you can read like that's what they're tattooing on his back and then when it cuts to the scenes in the cage that's the implication is these people in the cage they're going to use their blood as clean healthy blood or at least healthier to to get these these you know young war boys back up on their feet so they can continue to do war as they talk about so that's what happens with the the main character uh, the main bad guy there um uh played by nicholas holt uh nux i think is in nox i think nox i think they pronounce it like an o um at the beginning, he looks all weak and faded and they've plugged Mac, Mac, Mad Max into him and he's getting his blood. And then he's like, no, 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 I'm going. He's like, and he calls him blood bag. He's like, just take my blood bag and attach him to the car because he knows I need this healthy blood or I'm not going to be able to do. The guy says, you can't do war. You're not healthy. And he's like, I'm just going to take the guy with me. He's a universal donor. Hook him up to my car. I'm bringing him with me. I'm going to get the clean blood and I'm going to go to war. Why would they strap him to the front when they're like ramming into other cars and stuff like that? It just it's cool weird. visual. Yeah, I guess. So anyway, so Charlize Theron comes into the film and you can see she's stealing something from the gang and she's driving this big rig to get away. And they come after her with these spike cars 
and they go into the sandstorm, like you mentioned, CGI. Mm-hmm. And there's that guy that's playing electric guitar on the front of oh one my of God. the trucks. Wasn't that great? It reminded me for some reason of the band from that movie From Dusk Till Dawn. Do you I'm remember? familiar with the movie, but I haven't seen it since it came out in the 90s. Okay, I'm definitely going to have you go back and watch that film at some point. Because there's there's a scene in there where there's this band and the, Tom Savini is in it. And he says, let's just kill that band. I don't, I don't know why. Every time I saw the guitar, guitar guy on the front of the truck, I was just reminded of that band in that movie. Uh, so, again, lots of questions. What's with the spraying the chrome spray paint on their mouths? What was that all about? So, again, it's part of the religious dogma that the leader has has indoctrinated them with, right? He's brainwashed them. He's like, he's the leader. When they die, they're going to – if they have a glorious death, they'll go to Valhalla. I think the idea is that the the – spray is is some sort of um drug like it's like a morphine something that'll give them like a high before they do something that is clearly going to result in their death because they keep saying it. they're like witness me and he sprays it in his mouth and then the guy like jumps off the rig to blow up a car or again they're always trying to do something that will give them a glorious death i i turn to my wife because we watch this together and I said, you know what that reminds me of? It's like when kids are around the swimming pool. Mom, watch me dive. Watch me dive. When they go, witness me. That That's the adult right. version of the little kid going, watch me dive. Watch me. So, and again, the guy sprays in his mouth. Witness me. Does this crazy thing. He, you know, he gets the, the temporary high and performs the act. And boom, there's, there's usually a, a spectacular death that results. And then all the other guys are like, witness. And they hold their hands above their head with their fingers interlocked. To make the the V shape, because earlier in the movie you saw them do that. They worshipped the V8. They literally held their fingers up in front of all the steering wheels, and they said something about the V8. And, and again, because they seem to have this worship of cars and vehicles. And we're going to Valhalla again, the V. Um, so I think that the 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 silver spray is like an intoxicant that that gives them a temporary high, that gives them that courage to act in a way that's clearly going to result in their death. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Uh, so Max helps Charlize Theron escape because he like stops the flame from blowing up her truck. And so she's able to get away. And then he stops and sees these beautiful girls get out and they're washing themselves with water. It's like an oasis yeah. in the middle of this hellhole world. Right. And one of the women has a chastity belt and she's pregnant. Oh, and they so, all have the chastity belt. Yeah. So you learn that they're, they're obviously the bad guys, wives, right. And they're escaping, you know, him. So another question, they, they go back to the the city what's with the overweight women that were milking what was that all about well i think i think the idea is that again the, the water is such a precious resource like they they have the uh the villain in morton joe he's got the water and you see the there's like greenhouses so they've got all the green and he's he's tried to find young healthy women to procreate with uh clearly against their will and uh you know, he's he's trying to to, you know, have a legacy uh, in the worst. But, but there were all these like overweight women. But that, yeah, you had, had these the, 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 the things attached to their breasts and they were like milking themselves. Yeah, I think I think it's the I think, again, it's the idea of how else like you don't see any animals. There's no cows. There's no goats. Uh, so how else would you get dairy into your diet? knowing that you need those particular vitamins and minerals, uh, not to mention breast milk is usually full of all sorts of other, you know, things that are good for the body you can in read, a world. Like you can world read all this into the movie. What's that? You can read all this into the movie. That's amazing. 
Well, it, it seemed pretty clear yeah. that they were they were there. Their sole purpose was literally to provide milk. Like they were clearly that was their purpose. Um, at, you know, and um, they were you know, like I said, they're overweight, so they're clearly making sure that they have the the food they need to be able to produce the milk. So, uh, so they they find that there's this church kind of place, and there's a sign that says "You won't take our babies." I'm assuming the leader is like you mentioned using women to create babies to maybe perpetuate the species or maybe at least create the skinhead goths to do his work. He's a tyrant. He's, he's trying to, uh, and again, you see at the beginning when they put on like his armor and his respirator, he's as sick as these other people, but he's clearly older. Right. And we, my wife and I had this conversation where we were like, how long ago do you think this, this nuclear apocalypse happened? And do you think that it was recent enough that, there are still people alive from before versus is everybody now born in a world where nobody has known any different. And I mean, based on the original Mad Max storyline, it happened in Max's lifetime. He was born in the world. We know the, the apocalypse happened at some point in his early adulthood. And now the movies take place through the course of the rest of his life. So the Morton Joe villain looks old enough to have probably been a part of the previous world we assume mm-hmm. and but he's sick so again i think this reflects that some people are sick because there's radiation in the world uh, some people are sick maybe because they it, it might just be like a proximity it happened here you were close by you got screwed whereas maybe you were farther away you didn't like like uh um charlie's theron's character uh furiosa she doesn't seem to have any sort of birth. Def- I mean, she's missing an arm, but that doesn't seem to necessarily be a birth defect. I assume that probably is something that came about through combat or whatever. I mean, they never go into it, but they don't have to. She got a robot arm and that's all you need to know. Um, so it seems that some some people in this world are able to be are born healthy. I mean, even look at the wives like he's found five or six of these women that they're, they seem healthy. They seem you know, they're very beautiful and at least one of them is able to conceive a child because she's very pregnant when you when you first see her. Um, but the bad guy himself is clearly not 100 percent. So mm-hmm. yeah. also there was a scene there right around the time when they went in the church where it looked like there was a big dome. And I'm just and I'm wondering because I haven't seen the other movies. Was that some sort of uh, throwback to the Thunderdome in some way or no? I don't think so. I think it was just a stylistic oh, okay. choice. It, remi- it reminded me of like a bird. Uh, what do you call them? A- Aerier? Aerie? Yeah. Aviary? Like an aviary. Um, and, yeah. And mm-hmm. if you in in other scenes where they show that um, the plateau where the, the war rigs get lifted up on those uh, elevators, when they show the top of it where the green space is, you can see that domed area. So clearly it, it's outward facing uh, and has a decent view. And again, this is clear. Like there's like a vault door that looks like an old bank vault. Like clearly Joe, Morton Joe has, this is a prison. Like these women, again, it emphasizes these women are not here because they want to be here. They clearly are not free to do what they want to do. They clearly cannot leave. They have, they've been, you know, put in, they've been enslaved for the sole purpose to have his children. And, and that's clearly why they want to leave. They're like, we're not slaves. You know, you can't, you can't make us do this anymore and then like you said later on you see them with the bolt cutters cutting off the chastity belts like they make it very clear that these women were slaves and, and like the one says i'm not going back 
but a little later in the movie, one of them is like, oh, well, you know, this could be bad. At least if we go back, we'll be treated right. It's like, no, no, no. You've clearly got Stockholm Syndrome. Like, you got to get out of this thing. So lots of questions, like I mentioned. Uh, what's sure. with Charlize Theron putting the black grease on the top of her face, you think? I think it's just uh, to look scary. Like, I, I, I think it's part of the visual image, right? It's like, why does Batman wear his suit? To strike fear in the hearts of, of his enemies. I think that's the same idea. It's this is the persona her character has had to put on like there are not many women in this movie and the ones that are in there it's it's the wives who some are are more helpless than others because they they don't know any other life or it's the really really old women who knew enough at the time to fight back have been resourceful enough but among the you know among the 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 war boys and a Morton Joe, like there, are, there don't seem to be any other women in positions of authority. So I got to think that in order for Charlize to, to have gained this position, like this, uh, this title they give her of Imperator, it seems to be a, a lofty position. She drives the rig. Like at a later point, the the war boy Knox says, like I never thought I'd get to drive the rig. Or when he's like, oh, we've recaptured the wives. I can ask for anything I want. I'm gonna ask to drive the rig. Like clearly, driving the rig is a big deal, and you don't just let anybody do it. So, in my mind, this is just the way that she has been the toughest badass woman she can be to actually be able to do- to to be a dominant force in a world where. All, everybody else is a man. It was interesting, uh, the guys that were chasing her, one of them says, all this for a family squabble. Yeah. You know, I thought it was interesting. Uh, a lot of the vehicles are chopped together, too, from parts of, like, different cars and trucks. At one point, there's a General Lee with, like, yeah. tank tracks on it, like a 69 Dodge Charger. Um, so then the pregnant girl that you mentioned, she falls off the rig, and they don't stop for her. Max says to them that she died in the fall and was run no. over, but he no. didn't actually see it happen. No. Um, uh, a couple of things in, ter- in regard to the, the stylistic uh, part of this movie. You mentioned about um, uh, how there's a blue look to everything. And like at it, night. When, when it's night, yeah. Yeah, except I thought it was kind of neat, except where the girls were, they had a little flame and it had a warmer yellow look right around. Very stylistic, the way it was shot. Yeah. And in some shots too, the clouds move really quickly as if the frame speed was sped up, but the stuff in the foreground still moves at regular speed. Very stylistic. Very, very cool. I, I don't think I've ever yeah. seen that done in a film before, so, so that was pretty cool. So anyway, so they come to this tree, and there's mud, and there's these people on stilts or something. And again, my wife was like, um, yeah, okay, this movie was getting better for a bit, but this <laughs> movie is messed up. Well, she didn't use the term messed up. I'll just say that. Yeah. This movie is very bizarre in places, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's funny. uh, One of the things that I mentioned to my wife when we watched it is like it reminded me – and we've said this before about like Raiders of the Lost Ark, how Steven Spielberg does an excellent job of controlling the pacing. It's like you've got this fantastic opening sequence where it's high energy, high octane, and then – the movie calms down and lets you as the audience breathe and take a breath and relax and calm down. And you get like the, you know, Dr. Jones back in the, in the office. And then he takes off again and it's Indy on his adventures. And this movie to me has that same idea where it's, uh, although the, the action sequences are much longer, you have these action, 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 mm-hmm. action, 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 action. And then there's a pause. And it was funny because it's sort of like after the first chase sequence, when they finally stopped, I, I literally turned my wife and I went, ah, now I can breathe again. And, and I I feel that 
this movie does that very well where there's a few quite long sequences that are like high octane, high action to the max all the way up to 11. And then they do a very good job of saying, okay, we've got what we needed to do. We got to this part and then let's just cool it down for a minute. Let's make sure the audience, you know, can catch up, take a breath both the characters on screen can take a breath and us as the audience can take a breath. And these night scenes where they're, uh, where they're going through this wasteland, to, like those were certainly parts where it was like, okay, I'm just going to calm down for a minute, take a breath. Yeah, that makes sense because there was like long sequences where they were, you know, battling and stuff like that. So you're right, mm-hmm. uh, slow down. The, the scene where the, the cricket is walking on the girl's arm and the bald goth kid eats the cricket, my wife says to me, oh my God. And then she fell asleep. She didn't watch it. <laughs> so, um, so they decide at this point that they can't get across the salty desert. I'm, I was assuming it was like a dried up sea or something. So that's when they decide to go back to the evil guy uh, to his city and to, I guess take their chances fighting him again. Well, that's what they, they said. He's like, look, you can travel across this salt marsh, uh, the salt plains, whatever it might be, for 100 days in that direction. And never find anything. Right. You may die out there. You have, yeah, you have enough supplies to go for 100 days, but there's no guarantee you're going to find something within the time frame of your resources. And it's going to be long and hot and difficult. But if we race back in the other direction, we only have to travel one day back the way we came. There is green space there. And right now, it's undefended. And all we have to do is race back there and be the first ones to return. We don't even have to necessarily fight the other guys or encounter them. I mean, they do obviously end up fighting and encountering them, but as long as they win the quote unquote race, it just becomes an exercise of speed. Who can get there first? And whoever does can take control of this, this green space, which is ultimately what they were looking for. They wanted freedom in a green space. Well, if they can get back there before Morton Joe, then they'll be in control. They won't be under his thumb and they can dictate the terms and they can be the ones in charge. And, uh, uh, you know, that sets up sort of the second half of the movie where the first one, Shirley's and the girls are being chased in the second one. It's a race. It's the first one back. And I mean, in both circumstances, you have a lot of fighting going on, which is visually spectacular. But, yeah, it's chase in the first half, race in the second half. So in the race in the second half, though, turns into a, a, a fight because they run into the, ball, the bad guy. With the guy with yes. the bellows and his henchmen. Yes. And this whole new truck fight starts again. And the one guy is siphoning gas and he's spitting it into the air blowers of the supercharger on the hood. I, I didn't know you could do that. I always thought those things yeah. were only for bringing in cooler air into the engine. Now, of course, keep in mind, I'm not much of a car guy. I mean, I failed auto shop in high school. So, you know, there's that. I, I think you just accept that it, it works the way it works because right. you see the, the good guys and the bad guys doing it. Right, they both did. Uh, and, and it has become a stylistic thing where I've seen other shows borrow that idea it, as a sort of homage or parody or ripoff of what they saw in Mad Max Fury Road. So whether or not it actually is a real thing that would work, it has been accepted as the norm in pop culture and it has already been – uh, replicated in other pop culture that has come out since then. Okay. So um, the guys are on the long poles and they're swinging down to try and get into Charlize Theron's truck. And yeah. I thought it was kind of cool. They reminded me of Cirque du Soleil 
They were Cirque du Soleil. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was kind of I, I watched. A, I watched a couple of the special features, and that's what they said. They got. They were Cirque originally Soleil guys. To, yeah, yeah, I've seen them. Yeah. I've, I've or, seen or Cirque retired Soleil. Cirque du Soleil. Yeah. I think a couple of them were that's like, cool. "We used to be on it, but we've retired," and so they reached out. And they originally were going to bring them on as consultants to try and figure out how to make it work with harnesses and wires and special effects. And the guys were just like, we'll "You know it. what? We can just do it." Yeah, and they're like. Okay, we're going to do it. And they were actually doing it on moving cars. And it was that's what the director kept saying. He's like, anytime we could do it on a moving vehicle without all this other stuff was great. But it obviously increased the risk of injury. So they had to rehearse it and practice it and block it and and do it and do it and do it and do it. And then when they actually got ready to film the scenes, it's like, we don't want to have to redo this more than once. So let's make sure we get it right. And uh, yeah, it was uh it was an interesting visual. And in the commercials and the ads, once the movie came out, the guys on the poles, I think they called them pole cats. That that was what you kept seeing in the ads was these pole cats going back and forth. And the yeah, it's it's a stunning visual. Again, it's it's not the kind of thing you've seen in another movie. There's so much that's in this that is original that you would think, OK, it's a movie. It's a car chase. Yeah, but let's make the cars look really, really original. But, you know, they have they're tricked out They're like the Immortan Joe's is like, if I remember correctly, it's a Cadillac with the body of another Cadillac on top of it. Like it's it's this it couldn't be a single car. And then it's on top of like the Bigfoot monster truck wheels. Like it's it's just I'm not even a car guy. And I'm like, oh, my God, that mm-hmm. looks so amazing. Like it's so clear that the visuals of how these cars looked was every bit as important to what is their function and and to me this is something that um is very important and really is a good sign of a good movie and a good creative process is it can look cool but it has to be functional as well or serve a purpose um one of the um one of the reality shows i used to watch was called face off it was about uh movie special effects and they would bring all these up and coming like special effects people together and and give them challenges like make a fish man or make a robot man or whatever. And the judges were constantly saying to them, like, you know, you've created this alien, which looks stunning, but the the parts of your creature need to make sense. Even if it's an alien, it still has to have some logic to it. And these cars sort of fell into that same mold where they look stunning, but they also clearly had practical applications in this world and in many cases you saw these practical applications used like with the morton joe's monster truck there's a scene uh where he's able to climb over a barricade like when the the rocks collapse he's the only car that can climb up and over and around it because his is the only one that's capable based on the the wheels and the size of it and then when he's chasing the the rig he does like this jump and it's like the jump goes up and over and behind and it bounces and it's like a normal car would have been totaled. And um, yeah, it's it's just it's visually stunning to see the practicality and the originality come together for these cars. Oh, yeah. And like, like I mentioned, I think the movie is very visually appealing. It's, it's stylistic. Yeah. It uses a really cool camera shots. But really, it's also at the end of the day, just a bunch of people driving around in trucks and fighting at high speeds in the desert. Very true. Very you know? true. But there's that big fight in the valley and the main bad guy dies and the goth bald kid sacrifices his life so they can get away. And then Charlie's there and her, her lungs are collapsing. So Max cuts open her side with a knife. I'm not sure why he did that. 
Not only did I fail auto shop, I also failed first aid in high school. <laughs> well, I've seen I've seen that on like doctor shows like yeah. Grey's Anatomy and such, where if someone's got a collapsed lung, they they will put like a tube through the side between the ribs yeah. to give the lung a chance to uh, inflate again. Again, I'm not a doctor, but that's what I seem to recall from various medical shows on TV. And again, I think this harkens back to Max is from the time before the apocalypse. Right. He has certain skills that he's learned. And I would think as a police officer, he would have had certain first aid skills. And again, this, I mean, that certainly goes well above and beyond what you would learn in a normal first aid course. But I think this is supposed to be a reflection and a reminder that a lot of the people in this movie are clearly have never known a world other than this apocalypse. He is one of those people who knew the old world and has some skills from before the old world. And, and I think the old ladies they find later, uh, again, are another reflection of that. She's got all the seeds in a bag. Like she's right. realized that even though the world is dead and dying, there are things that are more important. I'm not going to plant my last seeds and hope like heck that it grows and I have food. It's more important for me to save these seeds until we know absolutely we can grow them somewhere in a green space. Um, so I think, I think that's an important distinction in the movie, sort of identifying which characters are sort of the before the bad time and have that knowledge and experience versus which ones don't. And clearly the ones that, that are after are all the war boys. It's all the people who are sick. It's all the ones with the pale skin. It's all the ones that, you know, uh, are, are li living these lives where it's like, I'm going to live at a hundred miles an hour at, for as long as I can, because I don't have a long time to live. Yeah. Like I say, I wasn't really sure what that scene was about like when he gives her the blood transfusion kind of thing. Like I say, not only did I fail auto shop and, you know, first aid. I think I failed a lot of things in high school. I think I spent probably too much time in the cafeteria selling smokes. I don't know. Jeez. Apparently. But anyway, so they arrive at the city and uh, Mad Max shows the people the body of the dead leader and they all rejoice. It's it, it reminded me of the guards in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy kills the witch with the pail of water. They secretly all hate the evil leader. Yeah. You know, and then they see Charlize Theron and they're like, she's back. And then she becomes the new leader and Max just fades into the crowd. And like we mentioned earlier, the movie didn't really center around Mad Max at all. No. The movie should have been called Mad Charlize Theron. Well, again, I think part of the reason that you do a reboot, a reimagining, a sequel, a revamp or whatever you want to call it is your marketing dollars can be spent reminding people what they liked about a familiar brand. So you're not just saying this is the desert car chase movie. You're calling it Mad Max. And I'm like, well, by calling it Mad Max, there's going to be a lot of people that have a nostalgia factor that are like, well, I remember the old Mad Max. Maybe this is part of that franchise. So, you know, you've already got a built in audience mm -hmm. and you don't have to build it up from nothing. So I, I think that's why we see more and more the big successful movies are franchises that can build upon themselves or build on a brand or build on a book. Like you think like the Marvel comics, the Harry Potter, the, the uh, hunger games, like these are all based on franchises that people already know about, or you get the reimaginings, the reinventions, think something like James Bond. How long, many times James Bond been reinvented and reimagined like a six or seven times. We got different James Bond. Again, you call a movie James Bond, you have a built in audience. You know why call it British super spy when you can call it James Bond and be like, okay, I'm going to make $100 million simply by people who are coming to see it because of the name. So I think with this yeah. one, you call it Mad Max, even though it's very clear he's not the main character of this movie. Right. Because movie you're going to have, have been, an audience. The movie could have been made without him. 
He could even absolutely would have been fun. Yeah, could have right? been anybody. Yeah. Uh, and there's been discussions about doing a, a movie featuring the Furiosa character, either a story that takes place before these events, like how did she become who she was, or even a sequel. And I think both of those ideas would work. Um, but I do believe that the director uh, worked with I can't remember which publisher, but they did a comic book or a series of comic books about this new Mad Max Fury Road world. And they sort of explored the backstories of a lot of these characters in the comic books. And according to the director, as far as he was concerned, these were canon. He is the writer of this series. He's the director of this series. He he, he gave the license or well, I don't know if he gave the license, but it was his ideas that fueled these these comic book backstories. So whether or not they use that in movie form or whether or not they choose to do a sequel to this new one, who knows? I mean, look at George Lucas. For years, he licensed out Star Wars and people could write novels and comic books and those were all considered canon. And then he sold the thing to Disney and Disney went, if it didn't come out in the theater, it's not canon. Forget about it. We're making changes. So who knows? So if you had to rate it a 10, what would you give it? Nine. Oh, wow. I would give it a... No hesitation, no question. I'd probably give it a six and a half. Like I said, I liked it. I thought it was good. I thought it was stylistic, but uh, yeah, it was was all right. Okay, so uh, that's the movie, and now time to have some fun with Caveman. You know, I I got to thinking. There's been quite a bit of Australian influence in pop culture over the years. So this week, I'm going to give you trivia questions about Australian pop culture, okay? So... Here we go. I'm going to do so badly on this. I can nah, these are easy. You're going to get them all. Okay. Okay. First one. This Australian actress made her feature film debut in BMX Bandits. She later went on to be nominated for Academy Awards for her performances in Lion, Rabbit Hole, and Moulin Rouge. And in 2002, she won the Best Actress Oscar for her role as Virginia Woolf in The Hours. Right. Okay. Uh, that's Nicole Kidman. You are correct. See, you're going to do really well at this. I got it once you got to Moulin Rouge. I'm like, oh, yeah. Uh, you're going to do fine. Okay. This 1986 action comedy movie put Australian pop culture on the map, mainly due to the charisma of its leading man, Paul Hogan. Oh, um, Crocodile Dundee. Yay! See, it's Crocodile Dundee. Of course, right. Now, this beer featured in Crocodile Dundee served to further put Australia onto the map in the 1980s North American pop culture. Can you name the beer that was featured? I'm a little embarrassed to say I think I can, even though I'm not a beer guy. Was it Foster's? It was Foster's Lager. Yes, congratulations. And Paul Hogan did the ads. I I remember the commercials. Yep. There was the whole thing where he's like, we can't show an actor drinking a beer on camera. So I got to wait 30 seconds to drink this beer. And then it was like counting down. And he's like, all right, 1097, fade to back. And then you hear him glug, 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 glug. Yeah, they were good ads. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. All right. This rock band was formed in Sydney in 1973. And despite losing their lead singer in 1980 as a result of choking on his own vomit, they continued to churn out the hits until 2016 when their new lead singer suffered hearing loss and was replaced by Axl Rose. Derek, can you name this Australian rock band? Well, I thought I could until I got to that Axl Rose part, but I'm going to stick with my original guess, which was ACDC. 
You are correct. Oh, okay. ACDC. I had no idea yeah. that yeah. Axel Rose stepped in. Wow. Yeah. Talk about a step backwards. Oh, no for, for the band. Not for the for band. Axel. Yeah, not for Axel. This Australian band rose to fame in the 1980s with hits such as Suicide Blonde, Never Tear Us Apart, and Need You Tonight. Yep. One of my favorites, In Excess. Yes. You got that one right. See, you're doing so well at this Australian well, thing. You're giving me the easy, the easy low balls right over the plate pitches. Yeah, so. they're all easy. I told you. Okay, so this gruff Oscar winner was nominated for three consecutive Oscars for Best Actor and spends his spare time fronting a rock band called 40 Odd Feet of Grunts. Derek, yeah. can you name him? I it's uh, it's the guy who was in Gladiator. And for the life of me, his name is eluding me. His name... Oh my God! I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. It was he was nominated for the Insider. He was nominated for Gladiator. He was nominated for Beautiful Mind. I'm blank. I can't. I can't remember his name. I don't know. Russell Crowe. Oh, Russell! <laughs> I can't believe I couldn't get that. How could you I'm not like, get I that? I picture him. I could see the movies. I could see the. Oh, I can't uh, believe I missed. It's it. all good. It happens. Yep. All right. This Australian actress had five number one singles including the number one song in the Billboard charts for 10 consecutive weeks in 1981. But even with her amazing music success, she's yep. still best known for her roles in movie musicals. Derek, who is she? Olivia Newton-John. Yes. And Grease Be Damned, I'll always remember her for Xanadu. Oh, okay. This Australian TV star died in 2006 while filming an episode of his show on the Great Barrier Reef. His daughter, Bindi, has continued in her father's footsteps as a TV personality, even winning season 21 of Dancing with the Stars. Derek, can you name this Australian TV personality? I'm not sure if I... It was a crocodile hunter, right? But you want his real name. His name was... Steve Irwin. That is correct. Oh! Yes. This Australian supermodel, nicknamed... The Body, graced the cover of Sports Illustrated's swimsuit issue a record five times and was also known for her recurring role on the iconic TV series Friends. Can you name her? No, I have no idea who that is. It's Elle McPherson. You don't know Elle McPherson? No. I mean, once you said her name, I know who she is. I didn't know that was was her body. Oh, jeepers, creepers. All right. This singer is the highest-selling Australian artist of all time. Her early success involved a role on the Aussie TV series Neighbours and a cover of the Little Eva song, Locomotion. However, it wasn't until she reinvented herself as a sex symbol with her single, Can't Get You Out of My Head, head. in 2001, that she became a superstar in the U.S. You got her? Yeah, it's Kylie Minogue. You are correct. Yes, it was Kylie Minogue. All right, this drag character was created and performed by Australian comedian Barry Humphreys. Known for her purple hair and cat-eye glasses, she landed several roles on television, including a recurring guest spot on Ally McBeal from 2001 to 2002. Um, I want to... S- I, I can picture him. I can picture her. Uh, I want to say Edna something... Something Edna. Lady Edna? Is that close? It was Dame Edna. No, that's close. You got to give me half points on that. I guess, I guess so. 
All right, this rock band has won more Australian Recording Industry Association awards than any other band in history. All five of their studio albums debuted at number one on the Australian chart. Can you name the band? Wow. Uh, their albums were Frog Stomp in 95. Oh, Silverchair. Yes, you got it. Okay. Honestly, when you said that, I thought, man, it's it's probably something like Silverchair. And then you're like, Frog Stomp. I'm like, that was Silverchair. All right. This Australian, final one here. This Australian children's musical group features group members Anthony Field, Lachlan Gillespie, Simon Price, and Emma Watkins. They were listed at the top of Business Review Weekly's top earning Australian entertainers four years in a row and earned $45 million in 2009 alone. Derek, can you name this top earning Australian children's act? No, I don't have any children. That doesn't ring any bells whatsoever. (laughs) Who was it? I have no idea. Yeah, you don't have kids. You don't know the Wiggles. Oh, okay. I've heard my friends who have kids speak of them, but I couldn't pick them out of a lineup if my life depended on it. I can't believe they made that much money. I can't. Unbelievable. Anyway, not bad. You did a pretty good job on those. See, when we went to start out, you're like, I don't know anything about Australian pop culture, but you do. Well, I mean, you gave me the easy ones. Yeah, well, you know. I missed a couple. I mean, I didn't expect to get perfect, so. Yeah, I didn't want to make it too hard on you. But uh, anyway, so next week we're going to come back with with more of a topic. We're going to have a top five list, that's for sure. And then also you want to make sure you keep an eye out for the the best of episode that we mentioned earlier. That'll be coming out shortly as well. And if you want to reach us on Twitter, you'll find Derek at Amaron underscore DM. And you will find me at C McBrime. And again, popgoesyourworld.com is our website with all of our contact information. This is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying, thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 